Father Heaven, thank you for the opportunity to be here as a group, that for this moment of time we can come to you and worship. And please open our minds and teach us new things that we might use to make our lives better and to help spread the gospel message. This is our prayer today. Amen. Krista, come on up front. Volker's sitting here. He'll, he'll like to join you. Krista and Volker are my friends from way back. I went to do my cardiology training at the University of Kentucky in Lexington, and they were like my parents away from home when I was in Lexington, Kentucky. Much younger back those days. Boy, that was in the late 90s now. So I'm glad that they have, they've shown up, and I'm glad that each one of you have, have come here today. We're going to talk about the physiology of worship, and this can be a pretty heavy subject, but I've tried to make it as simple as we possibly can. Um, I am a cardiologist, and a lot of people ask me if I do this, you know, if I do ministry full-time, and the answer is no. I actually am a cardiologist that works with the Chattanooga Heart Institute in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I see patients every day. Um, of course, I'm not seeing them today. Um, but I've already got text on a couple patients that they had questions about. And my specialty is disease reversal. So I help people that have bad blockages in the arteries. Um, some of them can get the arteries out of the, the blockages out of their arteries. And this is sort of a new trend in cardiovascular disease. And we'll talk a little bit about that today. In fact, I was in the office on Thursday morning and a patient came to me that I wanted to tell you about, 21 years old, 21 year old, her name was Kristen. And Kristen came in um, the office and I'd seen her in the emergency room before when her heart was going 200 beats a minute, 200 beats a minute. Needless to say, if your heart's going 200 beats a minute, you don't feel very good. Well, we got that under control, but the problem that Kristen had was Kristen was not only pregnant at the time with her first child, but she was heavy into methamphetamines, and she was smoking, and she wasn't taking good care of herself, and she was six months pregnant. Needless, you know, I, you know, she was on her own at that time, but thank goodness in the office on Thursday, her mom came with her, and she says, what do we need to do to straighten Kristen out? And Kristen was right there, and I said, well, it's, it's not so much, sometimes it's about what we do, it's why we do it. It's our behavior. And so we talked about ways that we could change behavior, and some of the principles that we're going to talk about today, um, I introduced to Kristen, but, but yeah, I am a full-time cardiologist that has a ministry called HeartWise Ministries, and we're based in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And that ministry, we have a television program on Three Angels Broadcast called Ultimate Prescription. Some of you might have seen that. We've been doing that about 10 years. We have a radio program that we sponsor, and it's now on about 300 radio stations across the world. Um, it's called HeartWise. Um, Charles Mills is our host with that, and we have guests from all walks of life. Um, we have a, a website called HeartWise Ministries, and it's heartwiseministries.org, 
And if you go to that site, there's free medical information given. Now, we still enter into relationships, but we can steer you in the right direction, and there's no fee. We don't try to sell a supplement. We don't do that. We just do that for you. We also have webinars and different things you can be part of. But recently, we've really got as branch. We've been doing this since 19, no, since 2000 and about four as an official ministry. But recently, we've been focusing on developing resources to help people spread the gospel via the health message. That doesn't cost anything that they can use and bring into their communities. Um, we have one-minute spots on the radio and television that can be downloaded and put on Facebook pages. Um, we have lectures that are free to people. We have television programs and MP3s they can download. We have Facebook pages they can be a part of. But we also have, um, we've developed a, a seven-week Bible study. And people are doing this all over the country now, and they're, they're introducing this to their friends and neighbors to help people enjoy better health one step at a time. And in the last chapter of this, we talk about the physiology of worship, how worship in itself changes our physiology. And that's what I want to talk to you a little bit about today, how you might use this to improve your lives, but you also might use this as an evangelistic tool to help your friends and neighbors, because this is all evidence-based. And people like evidence. You know, they want to see evidence. They want to see proof that something works. And this all goes into the evidence, and this is a rapidly growing field, um, this, this field. of, And we're going to talk about this as we go on. So today we're going to talk a little bit about the physiology of worship. Hi, I'm Dr. James Markham, and I've been practicing cardiology for over 20 years now. I discuss health issues with patients every day at the office, and I try to help each patient grow to experience the best possible outcome. But the longer I practice medicine, the more evident it becomes that what I was taught in medical school didn't show me the complete picture. Today in medicine, we conduct procedures and prescribe medications, but too often our efforts are treating symptoms rather than getting to the root of the problem. In realizing this, I determined that something had to be done, and so I opened up the best textbook that I've ever owned, the Bible. Our Creator's original design for our health is well documented, and these concepts found in God's Word have significant implications for our lives today. It doesn't have to be hard. In fact, it's pretty simple. Jesus asks us to come unto Him, and He will give us rest. I invite you to join me and experiencing life more abundantly as together we learn to apply biblical prescriptions for life. Now that everyone's ready to go, we're ready to put on our thinking caps, we're going to cover a lot of topics in the next hour. Most of these topics um, you're going to hear lots of different things, but I want you to make it easy. Just, just let sit there. You don't have to take notes. Just, just have a deep breath. Pray. Let God touch you with one or two concepts, and that will sort of stimulate your minds of something you might want to learn more about. So don't feel like you have to learn everything today about the physiology of worship. I'm just going to leave you with one or two big points that you can take with you forever. And then if you want to learn more as this field develops, we're going to give you resources where you can add this sort of one step at a time. 
I want to start with telling you a story about um, Brian here. Um, Brian is, is actually still a patient of mine. And Brian was an accountant, and he got his accounting degree at the University of Indiana in Bloomington. And he was actually an accountant in an accounting firm in Indianapolis, Indiana. Is anyone from Indianapolis? Okay. Okay, this isn't really a picture of him. You know, we have to protect the innocent. Brian's really not his name, okay? But he's a real person with a real story. And Brian thought everything was going fine in life. He thought he wasn't having any problems. He had three kids. Um, they were growing up well. He enjoyed playing golf. He enjoyed sailing. He was actually moving up and was one of the vice presidents of his firm in, um, in Indianapolis. And he wasn't on any medications. He actually exercised every day, felt pretty good, no health problems, really didn't have much of a family history at all until September 22, 2012. On that date, he was in his office at work, a normal day, and he felt a gigantic elephant sitting on his chest. And he felt like he was going to die. He got real short of breath, his blood pressure was going down. He became cold and clammy. His heart rate started to race. He had pain going up into his neck. These were the typical symptoms of a heart attack. Now, I'm not going to ask how many have had a heart attack before in this room, but it's not very fun. And he was experiencing a heart attack, never had a symptom before in his life. Now, his staff knew exactly what to do. They called 911. They put an aspirin under his tongue. They put his leg up. They got the defibrillator pads ready in case, in case his heart stopped. And it wasn't lickety-split. Indianapolis has a very good EMS system, and he was getting medical care within the hour. That's how fast they were. So when they found out what was happening inside Brian's artery, that yellow stuff there is fat. Fat had actually accumulated inside the artery, and it messed up part of his artery called the endothelium, and all of a sudden, the, the, blood, the platelets clumped and couldn't get through to his artery, and he started not getting blood and oxygen to that part of his muscle, and then a symptom developed. And that symptom was a heart attack. And if we can get that symptom treated right away, guess what? He does really, really well. So within a few minutes, he was in the cath lab, and the doctors in Indianapolis put what we call a drug-eluting stent into the artery. And they opened that artery up, and as immediately when they squished that blockage, his symptoms went away. He felt great once again. So they opened that up, and he went in and was in the hospital a couple days, and they put him on all the medicines that we usually do. After they have a heart attack, we like to put him on some blood thinners because of the, um, the stent in the arteries. We, we, we try to rest the heart. You know, if you broke your arm, you'd put it in a cast. So we try to rest the heart and give it time to heal. And Brian seemed to do okay for a while. He went back home. And he was in the emergency room over the next year at least 45 times. 45 times. Every time in, he had chest pain. 
And the doctors did every test. They repeated the angiogram, no blockage. They looked at his CAT scans. They looked at his stomach. They looked at his muscles. They looked at his liver, his gallbladder, his pancreas, every part in the body, and they couldn't find anything wrong. And yet, Brian was a wreck. They put him on some medicines for, for anxiety, and they put him on some medicines for pain, but he was in pretty, pretty bad shape. So as many people do, he started giving second opinions. And he had, he had gone to the um, Mayo Clinic, and they couldn't find anything wrong with him. And he finally came down. He had seen or heard about me somewhere. I don't exactly know where. But he showed up at the Chattanooga Heart Institute, where I work in Chattanooga. And he told me his story. And he was having pain when he walked. He couldn't sleep at night. He wasn't really working well. His job was going crazy. His family wasn't happy with him. Of course, you can imagine, he was going to the emergency room all the time. And it was, it, the pain was real. So I started talking to him, and I wanted to share with him some of the different things that we, we could do. And we talked about his symptoms. And many of you might be having symptoms. And when we have a symptom, that, that just tells us that something is not right in the body, right? A symptom. It's not the way you normally feel. And that might be chest pain, it might be shortness of breath, it might be a headache. Those things are not normal. We call them symptoms. So Brian was having symptoms, but you know what? He had pretty bad blockages in his artery, and he wasn't having symptoms. So you can have pretty advanced disease or pathology in the body and not even know it. So we started talking about symptoms. I said, Brian, the symptoms are not really the problem. You know, what the really problem is what's causing the symptoms. You know, what is causing the symptoms? And in our discussions, it's important when you are having a symptoms to understand, well, what might be causing it? Because if we can get at the cause, we can stop the symptoms. But our system is developed to treat symptoms and not causes. People want the quick fix. They don't want to know what's causing it. In our world that we're living in, this humanistic, modernistic world, we are focusing on treating the symptoms, and we just want to get them as gone as quick as we can. We want to make someone happy. We want to feed into their pleasure centers in the body. Just take the symptoms away, and everything's fine. I'm doing well. And yet, you can have pretty advanced disease, as we see in Brian's case. So modern medicine is great at treating the symptoms of acute disease, but not so good at treating the cause of disease. So we talked about, you know, what's causing things to happen. Um, and I can remember one time he was having pain that was real when he was in the office. His heart rate was up to 110. He was perspiring. He was grabbing his chest. It hurt when he breathed. It hurt when I'm touching. You know, what is going on with Brian? And I felt like, what, what am I supposed to do? You know, he'd been to the IU. He had been to Mayo Clinic. He'd been everywhere else. You know, what could possibly be happening? So in thinking and praying about him, I want to ask you, what would you do? if he was his doctors. And I don't want you to answer this question now. Just think about it for a few minutes. What would you do? Okay. Number one, would you refer him 
to a psychiatrist. Okay, would you do that? Okay, well, no, that had been suggested, and he was on an anti-anxiety medicine. We're psychiatrist, and we're going to answer this question as we go through some of the history. Would you do an uh, MRI? That's a magnetic resonant scan to look specifically at the cervical spine. Maybe he got in a bad position and got a nerve trap. The MRIs can tell us that, and maybe that pain was wrapped around, even though it didn't explain everything he had. Maybe he needed to have an MRI, because that's one thing in his history he did not have. Should you increase his medications? You know, he's already on a lot. Well, maybe we should, you know, bump up the dose, you know? And, you know, he, he was thinking about this, but if you're banging your head against the wall and your head hurts and you get a little morphine, giving you more morphine might not be the best thing to do, right? Should we just repeat everything? Maybe all the other doctors messed up. Maybe the, the information that you received was not accurate. And frequently in second opinion work, you have to assess, well, is the information right that you're receiving? Maybe someone made a mistake in the di diagnosis. Should you offer him a placebo? Because we know that one in five people get better even if they think they're getting better. So maybe we should give him something and say, this is a magical pill that's going to take away everything you've had the last year. Would that be a good thing? Now, don't answer the question, but, but at the end, I want you to answer this question. Or finally, maybe we should turn him towards worship. What would that look like and what that might do? Now, before we answer this question, I want to give you a little bit of some background so you can answer this question as, as we finish. I went to school at the University of Texas in Austin. That's where I did my undergraduate. Has anyone ever been on that campus before? Okay, then you've seen this tower on that campus. I went there in the 80s, and in the 80s, um, on, on the wall there, you can't quite read it, it wouldn't be happening today, but there's an inscription. It says, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. They probably wouldn't allow that to be put on a public facility today. But that always stuck in my mind. Ye shall know truth. The truth sets you free. The truth releases you from bondage. Um, it releases you from all this kind of stuff. You know, the truth sets you free. So as going through at the University of Texas in the 80s, I was a major in zoology. Do we have any zoology majors here? None. Does anyone even know what zoology is? Okay, who wants to define zoology for me? There you go. Study of animals, okay? But not only the study of them, but it's the study of, you know, what makes them tick, including behavior. So somehow behavior got in my vernaculum back in the 80s, and it had to do this truth and behavior sort of all sort of interrelated, and God started working on me about truth and behavior and how important it was. Well, in zoology in the 80s, there was little biology and big biology, okay? So little biology is, has to do with this new growing field called genetics and DNA. And actually, this is a DNA strand. And the D DNA is a, is a unique 
substance that, that's at the basics of everything. The DNA sort of decides what we do. There's about three billion different base pairs in DNA, but only about 20 of thousand what we call genes do things, like make proteins that sort of regulate our bodies. So this is sort of like a blueprint for what we do. So, but I wasn't a person that got into this. We didn't even have this much back in the 80s. We knew a little bit about it. You know, Watson and Crick did the double helix, but we didn't know any of the details back then. So I wasn't very interested in learning much about this, but through the years I've learned, the more I learn, the less I know. And I've learned that most people in medicine, if they make it seem black and white, I'm a little suspicious. God has created us much more complex than we can even imagine. And you're going to see some of these complexities today. We cannot understand certain things, even though science is growing. But you know what we can do? We can trust. We can have faith. So at the University of Texas, I started learning about um, zoology. But this is what I spent time with a lot. Big animals. Spent time with chimpanzees and butterflies and, and alligators I didn't spend much time with. But we wanted to learn about behavior. And I can remember Dr. Singer and I at the university. He was in a, a, a place called Patterson Hall on the campus. And we had many different discussions. He really taught me a lot about animal behavior, which is affecting human behavior. And one day we, someone said, you know, alligators just love to be with people. Someone went down to the alligator farm in St. Augustine, Florida, and saw the albino alligator. And they were convinced that that alligator loved them. Pink eyes. And, and we said, no, it's not possible. Alligators cannot love. They don't have the genetics of love. You know, they just don't do it. They don't have the cortex it loves. And in fact, Dr. Singer was an avid evolutionist. Avid evolutionist. And I recently got to go to the Galapagos Islands back in May of this year. And I have been talking to those guys for years about how evolution just doesn't explain things, showing the evidence behind that. We were all down um, in the Galapagos in May and June studying what Darwin had done and all the animals. Um, and I said, you know, these alligators, you know, they're gonna, if, if they're hungry, they're going to kill you. And they're not going to think twice about killing you. Many animals are like that. Even though we share a lot of the common DNA, this animal is programmed to, you know, to stay alive. And yet people, if we were walking around killing each other, there would be some people that felt guilty. There's morals involved in this world. And if you have morals, that has to come from someone. That has to come from a creator. That has to have some higher power. And the fact that that's there and we haven't evolved to just stay, you know, me first mentality, that's one of the biggest arguments I think I find against evolution. One of many. So, but Singer did teach me a few things that, that was useful. And one of the things he taught me years ago that I want to talk to you a little bit about today is this, this motivational triad. Why we do the things we do. Um, Doug Lysel, a few years ago, have written a book um, talking about the motivational triad. 
And this is really has to do with animal behavior, and it's been passed down for years. Um, but, but animals, they're, 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 the way they're like an alligator, they, there's three things that they do, and we share this to a certain degree with animals. Okay, we have this built into our, our genes, our genetics, our hardwired. One is, is we want to avoid pain. We want to avoid pain. That's sort of built into us. If there's a painful situation, we want to get away with, from that. That includes mental pain. That, implies, that includes brain pain. That impl implies relationship pain. It's built into us. We want to get rid of pain. We're also programmed that we seek pleasure. Now, animals pretty much seek pleasure by two things. They want to eat, and they want to reproduce. That's the pleasure that most animals get. But humans, who have, have a sort of a more complex brain, has developed other things to seek pleasure from. We want to turn on these neuropathways that make us feel good. And unfortunately, many of those things that we seek for pleasure become addictions now, and we don't even know it. Because the world is sort of programming, this worldview is programming, we have to live this way, this is the culture of the world, this is the way we're supposed to be. And yet, subtly, we're changing our very epigenetics. And then the third part of the mo motivational try is we want to do things the way we're programmed with the least amount of effort. You know, if we can walk 10 feet and get an apple, or 100 feet and get, a, get an orange, we're probably just going to walk 10 feet and get the apple. So we want to do that sort of built into all the animals, including us. That's part of who we are. So in talking about this and how it relates to pain, there's different types of pain. Remember, pain is a symptom. There's the physical pain I'm hurting that Brian has, but there's also other types of pain in the body. And remember, pain is not normal. We're not designed to have any type of pain. Well, there's, there's physical pain, but there's also mental pain that's going on. And also, some people are actually in spiritual pain. I found out that Brian was in spiritual pain, and he didn't even know it. Because he had all these other pleasures that were making him feel good, he didn't even notice that he was having a major problem. So, when we have pain of any kind, whether it be mental pain, spiritual pain, physical pain, it activates this stress chemistry in the body. The body just wants to stay alive. It makes chemicals like epinephrine and cortisol and cytokines, inflammatory markers. And inside the brain, the brain does something what we call downshift. The brain just wants to stay alive, so it moves its resources to parts of the body like the amygdala, which says, let me just stay alive. So the higher parts of the brain don't work as well. Have you ever had your mom say, listen, you get mad and you're in arguments, just take some deep breaths and relax. You can think better. Students do better when they're under less stress. They think better. They're, they do better in test scores. Well, stress, no matter where it comes from, activates this, this chemistry. Adrenaline and cortisol, and that can come from chronic pain, and I tried to explain this to Brian. Pain was causing things to get worse in the brain, and it was accelerating a process, and there was real chemistry going on, even though we couldn't measure it. This was real. Mental pain is real. There's physiologic changes. Spiritual pain is real. There's physiologic changes. 
So pain was activating his stress chemistry. We're going to have a new stressor pretty soon. This is the modern-day cigarette. Maybe I should smoke it. I read a study the other day showing that every five minutes, some people are, are checking that cell phone. You know, and the, some kids are spending up to 11 to 12 hours on media a day. Remember, every input that we put in our body, no matter where it comes from, goes into us. And there's a physiologic response. Whether that be pain, a thought, an input, it goes somewhere. All these inputs we're putting, whether they're stored in the hippocampus, whether they're activating the amygdala. So it's not just about food that we put into us, it's about the environment as well. So this was important for Brian to understand that stress and these symptoms can be coming from a myriad of sources. And we want to get at the cause rather than just treat the symptoms. That doesn't solve anything. So this gets us to the epigenetics. Well, that's a big word, but what is epigenetics? What is that? Well, I'm going to try to break it down simple, but the DNA is sort of what tells our bodies what to do. Remember, we share some of that with the animals, some of that common behavior, like that motivational triad, we have built into our DNA. And do we have perfect DNA? No. And everyone's born with different set of DNA. Now, some of the DNA is very similar, but we can have identical twins who have identical DNA, and they develop different personalities, different diseases, and have different things. Something changes the DNA the way we're programmed. The changes in the DNA that affects the hardwiring we call epigenetics. What are all the little things that are changing the way we were wired when we were born? Epigenetics. I like to think of it like a computer. You know, you have your hardwiring in your computer, and then you plug in software programs, right? And stress is software that activates something in our genes that may maybe not be so good, maybe not so bad. But it can be good things and bad things for our epigenetics. We had a study recently done that showed people can alter, even if everyone in the family had heart disease in their 30s, these people weren't destined to have it if they could make some changes in their lifestyle, which changes your epigenetics, which is the stress and the hardware. We know that chronic stress on the body, it makes the DNA get older quicker. Now let me explain that for a second here. Before, it's not quite break time yet. But it's like hearing. Is everyone hearing me okay? Some families, everyone goes hard of hearing at age 70, right? If I go and yell in your ear all day long, you have stress on your eardrum, and you might run low on hearing at age 60, right? So that stress causes the part to wear out. So stress on a system can cause parts to age quicker. When we get aged, DNA does different things. Telomeres get smaller. There's an enzyme called telomerase that gets less of it. We have mutations. We give fancy names of this like oxidation. Can any, has anyone heard that word oxidation? That just means getting old, rusting, you know? Have everyone heard antioxidation? You know, we want antioxidants. That helps slow down aging. But all of it, no matter what it comes from, affects our DNA. And if our brain gets older and we put stress on the brain, the brain does things funny. It gets older quicker. And when we get older quicker, we might not think as good. 
Um, we might be forgetful. We might not be able to figure out. But everything ages at different speeds based on our hardware and our genetic software that we do things with. So in thinking about this, I, I, I said, listen, Brian, this is what's going on. We need to find some source of, of truth, some type of true north. And I decided, and I guess, Volker, this is coming from when I was at the University of Kentucky, I sort of decided I was going to find some true north that I, I, I didn't believe everything I read, so to speak. And that came from everywhere. I said, I'm going to put my faith in the Bible. And I'm going to let God be the authority on health. I'm going to let God sort of guide. So everything I want to test by the scriptures and realizing that we don't know a lot. And yet everyone around me was trying to be God. This is the best thing. This is the best treatment for this. This is the best lifestyle for this. No, well, what does God say? And I decided at that point in my career that I wanted to go back to the Bible. So I've spent years now going back to the Bible, finding the scriptures in the Bible, finding the evidence that support it, and trying to teach people how to apply it to their lives. We call that biblical prescriptions for life. Going back to the scriptures to change physiology. Now, we don't see a lot of studies on this. Why is that? It's not popular. In fact, you're going to see this kind of talk pushed down at every level. In fact, everywhere I go, especially in the Northeast, people make fun of me a lot. A lot of arrows. Someone even threatened to kill me once. But you know what? The more you do this, the more you realize that maybe that's not such a bad thing. Maybe if people don't like you, you might be doing something right. I don't know. But I decided to go back to the Bible as a source of truth. Um, and one of the important texts that I want to bring up today is this text right here, where it says, Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come unto me. What's that mean? Be with me. Worship with me. Be my friend. Spend time with me. Don't go anywhere else. It doesn't say go to the drugstore. It doesn't say go to the doctor. It doesn't say go to the hospital necessarily. Not that that's bad. But it says, come unto me. Who is this for? All. Is it just for the Gentiles? No. Is it just for the Jews? No. It's for everybody. Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden. Well, that would talk to the stress chemistry that we've talked about, whether we recognize the stress or we not, whether that be physical stress, mental stress, spiritual stress. It says, come to me and I will. Who is I? Jesus Christ. I will give you. It's a gift that's given to us. And he's going to give us rest, which is an interesting word. I'm working on a Bible study about the different types of rest. You know, there's about four or five different ways to rest and teaching people how to rest. No one knows how to rest anymore. We're going 24-7. You know, and, and, and that changes our epigenetics too. Remember, we were made to rest. And when we don't rest, whether it be mental, physical, spiritual, social rest, cell phone rest, it puts damage on our epigenetics that causes us to age. The telomeres get slower. Sooner or later, based on our hardwiring, the software changes. We have a change. We develop a symptom. We go to the doctor, and he treats the symptom and not the cause, right? 
So, so I've sort of found out that in the path to healing, there's many different roads, but there's only one path that leads to healing. And on that path, boy, you're going to beat all my points here, you know? Um, on the path that leads to heaven, if you look at the scriptures, the Bible's a source of truth. You know, how you look at it or not, there's about 35 miracles that were recorded in the New Testament, many more than that. 23 revol- involved healing. And all of the people that Christ healed eventually died physically. The people that he raised died physically. And several times in the New Testament, we found that Christ would have more people to heal, but he says, no, 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 I'm going to go preach the gospel. So Christ wanted people's hearts. So the real path to healing, it seems to me, might be into this path in coming to Christ every single day, and when we're in his presence, we're healed. Now there's ditches on either side of the road. One of the ditches is that modern medicine can heal you. We have a procedure, this is something I can do, I can put a stent in, I can do a bypass surgery, and there's nothing wrong with that. Modern medicine is very good at treating acute problems, especially genetic problems that we're born with, that the hardwire's not right. We're very good at that. But that's a ditch that we can fall off to, thinking that that's the only way to healing. Likewise, we can fall into the other ditch, Here's something I can do to heal myself. I can eat better. I can exercise more. I can sleep better at night. I can have better thoughts. I cannot spend so much time on the cell phone. And it goes on and on. And there's nothing wrong with that if we stay on the main path. And let Christ be in your hearts and guide you on each of these paths and give you the power to change as he sees in your life realizing that there's not one plan that fits for everybody. These were some of the things that I introduced for Brian. And so this is the main thing I want to lead you as we talk a little bit more. This is the take-home message I want to give you today, that if you don't remember anything else, you remember this, that worship, how you worship, is a biblical prescription for life. And remember, we're not thinking just today, we're thinking forever. The whole goal is we're going to get you to the path where I want you at the end of the lecture to decide how I handled Brian's care, and I'm going to tell you what happened with him, because he came back to see me just three or four months ago in the office, so he's still alive, still in Indianapolis. Um, so that, that's all good signs. But if we don't remember anything else, Worship is a biblical prescription for life. That's the path that heals permanently. That helps us understand and gives us the power to know what modern medicine elements we need and which ones we don't need. The power to make changes for the right reason. It's not about I. It's not about us, because that has its own dangerous chemistry, the selfishness chemistry. But as we work through this, I think you're going to see some other things that will excite you. So worship through the ages has been different than it is today. For instance, let's think about Adam for a second. How did Adam worship? Did he go to church? No, he didn't. did he have to go to a board meeting? Well, maybe, but it was a small board meeting. He got to commune with God directly, talk to God, and I'm sure he got to walk around in the garden 
and see beautiful things and got to take it easy. And if you go back into Genesis, the word that they use is he got to refresh, worship, refresh himself every so often. So Adam's worship looked very different than Enoch's worship. And we don't have a lot about Enoch, but we do know that he walked with God. And his worship was so good that God says, no, listen, let's, let's just be together forever. So there's whatever walking, going with me through life, the ups and downs, you know, he must have been with, with his worship must be an ongoing thing that God said, no, I just want to take you away. Now Moses probably had a much, not Moses, but Noah probably had a much different worship pattern building the boat. I'm sure he didn't have a church to go to. He didn't have a Bible, but he had a boat and he had a mission. And I'm sure he did a lot of preaching. He did a lot of serving. But his worship looked different than Adam's, which looked different than Enoch's. And this spanned thousands and thousands of years. Well, we move forward a little bit and we think about, well, what did Daniel's worship look like? Remember Daniel. Daniel is probably one of my best heroes in the Bible. I love the stories in Daniel. I love that book. And when I think about Daniel, here's a guy that was probably of royal blood. Um, you know, you remember how, you know, he, he brought over to Babylon, you know, he lost everything, and yet he did everything for, for God and second in command. You know, they brought him the king's food. They even changed his name from Daniel to mean that God is judged to this new Belteshazzar, which starts worshiping another god. And he's, all, he's trying to be brainwashed the entire time he's there. And yet he didn't lose it because he stayed in this relationship. He stayed with the God. He had a different worldview. Well, we're seeing that same brainwashing going on today at different schedule. But Daniel, no matter what, he worshiped God. You know, he prayed to God. He spent time with God. He, he, he did it. So he's sort of like one of the heroes that I have in worship. And we move to the, to the New Testament. Look at some of the examples of worship. How did Christ worship? You know, he taught. Um, he went around healing people, helping other people out. Um, you know, um, he, he spent time with his father. And one of the others, I think, well, what was, what was Stephen's worship look like? Remember Stephen? That, that people were really getting on him. They were stoning him. And yet, in the midst of stoning, you know that had to be both painful physically and mentally, but despite all of this going on in Stephen's life, really, when he was about to physically die, what was his thought process? And what was his, do you think he was having pain? No. No. He was able to say, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. What a great example of worship. So worship through the ages have been different. Well, why we're talking about this is because Worship is a biblical prescription that we want to have in our lives, and we want to teach other people about worship to change their physiology, to get them on the right path, to know which of these ditches to not to fall into, how to keep a balance to help them understand truth. So there's many different methods of worship that's been used throughout time. You know, Bible study, what a wonderful way to worship. You know, studying the Bible, spending time in the Word, activating those neuropathways every day. Every Bible verse you ever read stays in your hippocampus somewhere, even though you don't know about it, it's doing something. What about prayer? We can talk to our God directly. When we ask Christ to be Lord of our lives, to forgive our sins, to, to come into our lives, the Holy Spirit's there, 
And we're, we're cleansed before our, for our God. We can take our prayers to God. We don't have to depend on anyone else. How about praise? We can praise God. You know, everyone likes to sing their praises, right? We can sing praises. We can whisper praises. We can live praises. We can make our life about praise, another form of worship. And remember, worship changes our bodies, changes our epigenetics, which can slow down some of these hardwired changing. Giving thanks, being gracious, another way of worshiping God. You know, God, thank you. Thank you for everything. Thank you for bringing us here and giving us a bed to sleep in last night. Thank you for such a nice place to live, for having food to eat, something to drink, clothes to wear, truth to find out about, peace that we can have in our heart, for friends, for neighbors, for people that we've gone through life with, for doctors that can help us in different situations for pastors that can help us grow, for families that we can love, even for pets. I thank God for my pets. I got two dogs, Max and Daffy. I just love those dogs. I thank God for those dogs. I love them. They follow me everywhere I go. They make me feel good. When I come home, they're waiting for me in the life. They, they stand by me at night when everyone else goes to bed. They follow me around the house. Now, my wife doesn't thank God for my pets. My wife's name is Sonia. And she doesn't like my pets because they poop on her white carpets. I've never been able to get them to quit doing that. So they're, they're 12 years old now, so if anyone has a suggestion, let me know. But giving thanks is a way we worship, which changes our genetics, which changes our physiology, which can slow down aging. And I'm going to show you the evidence behind that in just a minute. Nature. Some of the best ways I worship is when I'm outside. It might be on, on the water. That's a great way. Or walking in the woods. Remember, some of the, the early worshipers didn't have some of the things we have. That's what they had. They had the world to look at, to see God in a tree, in a flower, in a bird, you know, in creation. Wow, what is another, you know, another book to read about, to understand God? When I look at all the studies and the DNA and the brain, you know, brain, if you think about that for a second, for a while they thought about 100 billion neurons, 100 billion neurons, they've downgraded it to 86 billion. Some people have more than others, but each, each neuron in the brain, those 86 billion, has seven little synapses with it. All these connections, and they're estimating that there's about one quadrillion connections in the brain. Much more complicated than we can ever imagine. Um, but just understanding that and seeing little biology, which we've never been able to see, the genetics, the epigenetics that we're talking today, you can see the Creator God every single day. And this is a way to worship too. Um, when we serve others, when you've done this to the least of these, you've done it to me. Amen. Worship and service. And I have to work occasionally on, on, on Sabbaths, and it bothers me, but... but I, I'm trying to make it a day of service. You know, when I'm worshiping, I'm serving others. Um, caring for your body could be considered. When you're a good steward of everything that God gives you. You know, he gives us, you know, some of our greatest things is our health. Another great gift that he gives us is our gift of time. We all have 24 hours today. 
What a wonderful gift that he gives us. But there's many different ways, and, and also meeting with other believers that we're like, like we're doing the next few days. I like to consider that as another way of we're worshiping. So our goal, though, is to be in constant worship in everything we do. Like Enoch, you know, everything he does. Like Christ, everything being about worship, because that's going to take us where we need to go. So nowadays, we have ways of looking inside the brain, looking inside our physiology, and able to quantitate the things we do and see how it affects our brains. And who here has ever had a CAT scan before? So everyone's sort of had a CAT scan. This is a CAT scan. This is a way we can look inside a brain. Who's had an MRI scan before? Well, that's a way we can look in the brain. That one's a little bit noisier, isn't it? Remember, that uses a lot of magnets, and it's a noisy thing. I had an MRI once, and, and I felt like I was claustrophobic in that thing. You know, they were looking at my shoulder. I was having some problems. But we can now look inside of the body, and we've never been able to do that before. We can look at the brain, look at the way things function, look at the way things react to different things. Um, this is a picture of a brain. And we can actually see parts of the brain that get bigger, that get smaller. We can measure now the, the brain neurotransmitters like serotonin, um, dopamine. Um, we can measure the bad neurotransmitters, the stress chemistry of the brain. We can also look at how the brain works, how it metabolizes. These are through things called PET scans. We can study the brain and see, well, what part is turning on when we do something? You know, these PET scans. What is the metabolism of the brain doing? What are things that we can do to make the brain better? What are things we can make, do to make the things worse? So let me ask you this question. Do you think chronic stress makes the brain better or worse? So what happens when we put stress in the brain? It ages quicker. Our body tries to compensate by downshifting like an animal, and we go into the sort of the hardware that we share with alligators. Let me just stay alive. Let me find some pleasure. And unfortunately, the pleasures some people reach for just treat the symptoms and not the cause. That pleasure might be food. Um, and there's certainly plenty of addictive things in food. It might be alcohol. It might be drugs. It might be pornography. It might be worshiping the cell phones. We look for other ways to do pleasure because when we come to this, the brain makes more of chemicals um, that, that are upregulated and it takes more and more to satisfy these pleasure centers. And we do that because our brain is downshifting. And we don't want that. We want to find different pleasures, different things so our brain doesn't move in this direction, which activates chronic disease, changes our telomeres, causes us to have genetic mutations. Sooner or later we get a symptom, and then we try to treat the symptom and not necessarily the cause. The brain is so interesting. Not only is it made, the brain's about 75% water. Did you know that? 75% water. The brain weighs about three pounds, so it's not very much of us, but it's electrical too. You know, for the people that understand electrical engineering, not only is the brain made of neurons with connections and a quadrillion pathways and goes into different parts and has the upper part that we have unique to us, and then the lower parts, which we don't share, but even us and a chimp are 98% similar genetically. So there's only small parts of this genome 
that actually separates us from an animal. So we share a lot of that, so we're going to share a lot of the behavior that we have with animals, when we're, especially when we're under situations of stress. So the research started developing over the last few years. Once we had these imaging techniques, we didn't have these forever, but with the advent of the PET scan, Andrew Newberg, Andrew is a, um, studies at the University of Pennsylvania. And a few years ago, he wrote this book based on his research, How God Changes Your Brain. And what Andrew did is Andrew taught some people about prayer and, and doing some basic worships, basic worship to a few people, okay? And then he studied the PET scans of the brain, and he studied the neurotransmitters of the brain, both the good and the bad, and he studied those. And, and all this research is in How God Changes Your Brain, if you, that book's available. Um, and he found out that the part of your brain called the anterior cingulate cortex, when a few people started worshiping, that part got bigger. And a lot of people consider that, well, maybe that's the God brain. Maybe that's a part of the brain that God works in, talks to you. Now, we can't prove this, but a lot of things were written about that. But clearly, in reviewing his work, and actually I saw the PET scans myself, these people's brains did get enlarged. They grew, more neurons. He also found out that the stress chemicals of the brain went down, and the good chemicals of the brain that help us feel good, you know, the endorphins, the dopamines, those increased. He also found out that the lower parts of the brain that we predominantly share with animals, the stress chemistry of the brain, the amygdala and those parts of the brain, they were actually turned down or down-regulated. So by worshiping, he proved that not only could we grow the brain, but we can turn off stress chemistry. So he started to open up a new field. Now, he did not do any large amounts of studies. There wasn't enough people to put in a trial or get published in a large, a large randomized, double-blinded study, and no big insurance company was funding him. No one was behind this. This is expensive stuff to do. You know, PET scans are not cheap. But he opened the doors that now we have neuroimaging. We have a tool that can go back and prove, again, that the Bible is true. We have science that, again, backs up the Bible. So he showed that the anterior cingulate cortex was changing, um, how God changes your brain. Um, but that's not where it stops. Then research evolved even further. Um, we started finding out about the small biology that we talked about the, in, earlier, the DNA. What makes these structural change happens is what's happening in the DNA. Remember, these are the the things, the genes that code for proteins that tell us what to do, tell us how to grow, tell us how to live. And remember, we talked about how things, different things change those for the good and for the bad, all the inputs. And as we get into the DNA, all of a sudden, guess what? We now have the ability, technically, to study the DNA under different situations. Francis Collins. Um, Francis is currently the director of the NIH. And in 2001 or so, he was the first scientist to sequence the DNA, the genomic material. So we know all the parts of the DNA now. And I, I think probably you've been exposed to, oh, learn about your ancestry, right? 
the DNA. We now have that. Well, they can sequence your entire DNA. And a lot of people are a little surprised at how much similar all of our hardwiring is genetically. So this just tells me that a lot of things that happens to our DNA happens outside of that. And there's a large portion, only 2% of the DNA actually we know about. 98% we think might regulate that. So we have large chunks of knowledge that we don't know. But Francis Collins opened up a brand new door when he sequenced the DNA. Now we have a new way of looking at genetic problems. Now the thing that, hot thing that came out last weekend is it's now possible to edit the DNA. Edit the DNA. But the question is, we've already heard about um, reproducing, you know, you've heard of um, the, the sheep that was created from a DNA. Where is this going to go? Is it going to be what man can do? Is it doing what we can do? Is this what we should be doing? I don't know, but now we have the tools to look at things that we've never looked at before. Dusek is a scientist that works at, at Harvard, and he works with um, Dr. Benson. And Dr. Benson, um, really, his lab became very famous years ago because they did all of the um, stress-related research, you know, um, things that stress the adrenal gland, that stresses you out. His lab did this, but he published an article, Not Too Way, where he looked at stress changes in the genes, in the genetic sub, by something called the relaxation response. Now, this relaxation response included people that worshipped biblically, but it also included other different types of worship too. Um, you know, Tai Chi, yoga, those type of things. So it wasn't a clear-cut study. But he studied people that did those type of techniques to change the brain, including those that did some biblical research, and he compared it with people that didn't do any of it. Now remember, we're talking about 60,000 genes that we know about. Well, he found out that about 2,200 genes were expressed differently. The genes were upregulated and downregulated differently. Now, this was a few years ago, and those genes were associated with, guess what? Stress-related medical problems, including oxidation. So he sort of showed that there is things that we can do in our brain, including worship, that can change our genetics, our epigenetics, that can slow down maybe aging these stress-related changes. Well, remember, this is just steps. Remember, we have Newberg with a step that he can show things are happening in the brain. This is another step, now that we have the tools to look at the genes. So he also compared people that had never, that had never done this before, before and after. And of those people, 1,500 genes were expressed differently after they were able to do things that, that changed, rested, he called it rest training. And this helped with the immune system, lower stress. So he went out and said, you know, when we can do these things, we can lower the risk of heart attack, lower blood pressure, lower blood sugar, less chance of immune infection, slow down aging, et cetera, et cetera. This is a way we can treat all chronic disease. Well, this didn't get much play because there wasn't very many people done in the studies. It also didn't get much play because how is our system built, right? One in every $5 is spent on taking care of symptoms now. We don't want to treat causes. We don't want to really slow down this process. We, most people just want pills nowadays. Um, so we're going to break right now and talk about well, where are we at so far in understanding physiology today. Then we're going to get back to Brian. 
So in thinking about the physiology of worship, we realize that this is an evolving field as we develop scientific techniques to study what God has said all along. But it comes back to that text in Matthew, come unto me and I will give you rest. Rest turns off the stress chemistry, the many different types of rest. But rest, when I'm talking about rest, is coming into worship. So that comes from that relationship that you have knowing God. Okay? When we know God, the physiology of rest can start to grow. We can develop this, this lifestyle, this, this, this pathway that we want to develop, both in our brain and in our bodies. But we also know that to know God is to love God, because God is love. Now, my wife, the other day, I was running late, and I had to be at the office. And she goes, Jim, can you take out the garbage? It was garbage day. And I was running late. I did not want to take out the garbage. Um, I said, Sonny, why don't you take out the garbage? I don't want to do it. Um, anyway, but I did it. I took out the garbage. Well, why did I take out the garbage? Did I want to do that? Well, I don't okay. care. No, I, I did that. I did it because I love my wife. I did it because I love my wife. I also knew it was the right thing to do. Well, when you know someone and you love them, the same type of, of decision-making comes. When, when God's going to ask us to do things and show us things, and not everything do we want to do. But we do it because we love him. You know, we, do, we don't do things in order to be saved. We do things because we are saved. And as we know God, we know that he's changing in our lives. We know that we're safe. We start to develop this love chemistry. And the opposite chemistry is this selfishness chemistry that, that is all around us. Me first. We can do it. I can do this. The selfish chemistry. So in the physiology of worship, it starts with having a relationship with God. He leads us to this word called love. That In my book, love is just a word representing billions of neuropathways. Love for you might look like activating the anterior cingulate cortex four, turning down the um, limbic system to two. It's, it's, a, it's a myriad of chemical reactions that maybe someday God can show us what it looks like for each person. You know, maybe worship. Now, now we have the ability to measure worship. Can you imagine someone telling you what worship works best for your physiology? Oh, yeah, you need to spend this amount in scripture, this amount of prayer, this amount going outside, this amount in service. That's the best combination for your genes for your hardwire to modify that. Who knows, right? So this leads us to the chemistry at rest. Come to me and I will give you, it's a gift that God gives us when we, we know him, we love him, we worship him. He gives us this rest, which is the opposite of the stress chemistry. It's a gift. It's something that we take, nothing that we do. It's a gift. You can choose to accept it or not to accept it. It's a gift. You can't earn it, you can't make it, you can't do anything for it. You can't buy it. You can't get it at a doctor's office. It's coming to me, and he said, I'm going to give you this rest chemistry. Coming to me, worship me. I'm going to give you this rest. So now we can show that this rest chemistry, through Newberg's work and Dusek works, it does decrease this stress chemistry. We've seen it on the, the brain scans. We've seen it on preliminary studies. It decreased stress in the body. It turns up. It uplifts our brain so we think better and we do better. It can grow neurons. It turns down some of the stress chemistry in the lifetime. And when we decrease stress over, over a long haul, it can be said that, that worship is a treatment for chronic disease. I didn't say an acute heart attack 
like Brian was having, but for chronic disease. Knowing God. Stress. Treatment for rest. So let's go back a little bit here and back up, and, and I want you to answer this question. Based on what we've learned here today, you're the doctor in the office. Brian comes to you, but you have to convince them that it's going to work. What would you do? Well, let's go through the list again. Refer to a psychiatrist. Can they really treat the cause of his symptoms? No. They can give him more medicines. They can. And I'm not saying there's not a place for psychiatry. If a person has genetic defects and other things cannot work, then maybe there is a place. But that's not where we want to start. That's not where we want to start. Should we do an MRI to evaluate the cervical spine? I don't think so. Brian had enough testing. I, I didn't want to do that. Increases medications. I didn't really want to do that. In fact, I wanted to decrease his medications because he was on three medications to deal with stress chemistry. He was on a beta blocker, an ACE inhibitor, and all sorts of things to lower the stress effects on the body. So we want to maybe get him off. Should I repeat all the tests he had done, spend another? He had, he had over $600,000 of tests that I had in my hands the day he came and saw me. 600000 Well, you know, you go to the emergency room enough, what the doctor's going to do? They're going to order a test. We're not going to want to talk to you a long time. It's not lucrative to do that. Should I offer him a placebo? I don't think so. And then finally, what I ended up doing was teaching Brian about the chemistry of worship. So this was back in um, 2000, this happened in 2012. It didn't happen overnight, okay? It didn't happen overnight. It happened slowly. And gradually over time, Brian began to get better. We, we taught him, first of all, that worship is a biblical prescription for life. And he didn't even think about his spiritual life. He didn't think about his spiritual life. He was in the pleasures of the world, which, which every time he had a pain in his body, either a mental pain or a physical pain, he thought, he's looked at the, the different types of pleasures we have. Remember, the pleasures in the world treat the symptoms, and it very much wants to not get at the cause. You know, you feel bad, you know, have, have a beer, you know, smoke a cigarette, you know, do this, help the different part, feel better in the short term. And when I, when I talk to people with addictions, I, I, you know, the addictions isn't the problem. This is our response to a greater problem. It's not what we do, it's why we do it. And I try to explain that framework of why we do it and help them understand. So I started explaining all this to Brian. And so he started introducing worship as a biblical prescription for life and for his symptoms. And the first thing I asked him to do was every morning, I asked him to get up in the morning and have this simple prayer. Remember where it says in um, John 3.3, 3, um, that text, create me, um, not, no, no, it's, no, no, let me be born again. That's John, let me be born again. I said, each day we got to be born again. And then Revelation 3.20, it says, I stand at your door and knock. Okay, the door of your heart, let him in. So I said, Brian, the first thing, every morning when you get up, ask God to be your Lord and Savior. Ask for forgiveness of your sins. Ask for him to sit on the throne of your heart, not the selfish you, but put a new you on top of things. And ask for him to guide each part of your day and to continue in worship. Do this every day. 
And as soon as you do this, the Holy Spirit's there with you to some degree. And you start changing. So he started doing that and realized when he did that, no matter what happened, even if he falls over physically dead, he's fine. That was the start. And he started appreciating this. And his relationship started to grow. And God started to ask him to do things. And he started to do it. One step at a time. He started to drink a little more water. He started to give up some of the habits he had that weren't so good. Okay? That he didn't even realize were bad habits. So, Brian learned a new pleasure. Should I sue, you know, and I like, you know, should we call worship a prescription? Should we call worship a pleasure? I don't know. You know, should we call worship a way of life? Should we call it a path to healing? I don't know. But I do know that when we stay in worship, for our health, that's a safe place to be. And there's evidence-based medicine that we can do to help it get into people's lives. I would love a study to say worship is better at lowering the blood pressure than three medications. Or worship is just as good as doing this or doing that. Well, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I can get Bristol Myers Squibb to pay for it. I don't know. Doubt it. But we need to have that information. But we now have the tools to help with this. So Brian learned this, and, you know, he, he started to do better. His, now just last year, another worship research study came out, and this one looked at all the studies, and it was published in the frontiers of immunology. And I wanted to bring this up, because this field is evolving. This field is not evolving. They looked at 847 participants over 11 years, and this time, th- th- why I'm interested in this study, is they found a specific gene that seemed to go up, and NFKB and, the, and, and different genes that were affected, and a large number of people. Now, remember, these people were some people that did repetitive prayer and some type of worship as we would know it, but they also did other types. So that really messes it us up, even though there's enough information out there that says biblical worship is important too. So guess what? We need to take the information from Francis Collins on the genome and what Dr. Newberg has done, and we need to grow with this to the next step. So that's why we at HeartWise are working on a worship research study right now. And what we're going to do is we're going to find, just like we did with Brian, we are eliciting partners and prayers and help to publish a biblical research study. But it's going to be very similar to the ones done before, because that's what it takes to get published in a major journal. It's going to be similar. It's, again, studying the epigenetics, and we found a partner on the epigenetics. Luckily, we found someone at Walla Walla University that has a big genetic machine that's going to do it for us. Look at 100 billion different genes at one time. These computers are amazing what they can do. They call that spectral analysis. There are a bunch of big words on genes that I don't even... I'm just learning. Remember, I'm a big biologist. I know more about an alligator probably than I know about the, the human genome. So don't ask me lots of questions. I know a little but we're going to study the epigenetics. Then we're going to look at the implications. What does this mean? Well, what if we could publish a study that shows, you know, we had 20 people that had never worshipped before, and we taught them how to worship over two months, and this is what happened to their genes both before and after. Worship can be said now, even if they're not believers, just the act of worship itself, and the warm-up that goes to worship. I'm learning about Worship requires a little bit of warm-up, too. You know, exercise, you get a warm-up. Some people have to warm up to worship, too. 
So we have a little 10-minute program that we're developing with theologians. And can you imagine how many different people come up with different forms of worship? But what would you give to someone that's never worshipped before? You know, how would you make it simple so they would do it? So we're going to end up paying 20 people money to do it. They're going to text us when they finish the worship, both before and after. We're going to study their genes, both before and ever. And we're going to get matched controls to study what the genetics look like of people that have worshipped. And then we're going to find out the results. That's what we're working on in HeartWise now, in addition to some of the other things that, that we've tried to move forward with through the years. So it's very, very exciting. So remember, this is really what I wanted to leave you with today and some of the background is I want you to take this text with you and put it into your heart. And the next time you come across this text, I want you to go back into the hippocampus, ask yourself the question, well, what is some of the science behind this question? Because like it or not, everything you heard today is in your brain somewhere. It's there, circulating around. So the next time you have a stressor in life that's stressing your brain, that's stressing your body, that's making things not good, remember where to go to, that path that's going to lead to healing. And that path to healing is full of good news. It changes your heart. In the Bible, there is around seven, 800 references to heart and another 200 to hearts. Remember all the text that says, create in me a new heart? You know, I want to cast out the stony heart. Well, back then, when all this was written, they didn't understand any, much about the brain at all. You know, they thought that the heart was what did the thinking, but now we know that the brain does the thinking. So all those texts were really, God, God wants to make us a new brain, a new heart. Well, uh, reprogram our neural pathways to turn off some of the stress and aging that's going on in the world to help us to find the real true north, the real truth that we need to, to go with. And remember, God is interested in your heart. And when he has your heart today, there, there's, there's hope. There's hope. So all of these references in the Bible, as you read those, I want you to start thinking about the brain and what, what worship does to your brain. And when you're changing yourself right now by reading the scriptures. So, so God wants our hearts, and it really changes our brain. The anterior cingulate cortex has parts of the body that change. And our brain is fearfully and wonderfully made. And we're just now beginning to understand a little bit about what's happening. Amazing. The next field is going to come up from the trillion bacteria in our gut that's making tons of genetic material all the time. There's more DNA in the gut than the entire body combined. And that's affecting, so what you put in your gut affects your brain. A lot of the neurotransmitters, some of the precursors are made there that affects the way the brain works. That's another growing field we don't know very little about, we know very little about right now but what we're learning. So it's even more complex than, than this computer, more complex than the internet. And yet now we think we know everything. We think we can fix things. We think we can know things. And some of these distractions all focus us back to a different worldview, a different worldview in healing. Is it what I can do? Is it what we can do? Or is it what Christ can do by the indwelling of him every day through the worship we do? There's hope. I had um, a person come to the office a couple weeks ago, metastatic pancreatic cancer that had some bad heart problems. I think he was 43 or 44 years old. And pancreatic cancer is a bad player, a bad player if it's advanced. 
Um, what do you say? You know, what do you say? You know, the doctors were going on saying, you know, more chemo. We can cut this out. We can cut that out. And they were going on and on. And I said, no, let, let, me, let me tell you where it's at. Let me tell you here. I go, when you ask God into your heart, when you come into his presence, you're fine. You're healed. That's what he's really interested in. He's interested in this forever, forever. There's hope for today. And even if things don't go well, there's hope for tomorrow. And then sometimes we don't know everything. And sometimes when we're sick, when we're in pain, when we have stress, when we have bad things that happen, God uses this bad thing to bring us close to him, to wake us up so he can accomplish the big goal. You know, I, I came down, you know, I'll tell a story real quick before time runs out. I came down with type 2 diabetes last year. Type 2. You know, I thought I was healthy. You know, I thought I was doing things right, but evidently I wasn't. But everyone in my family has got diabetes at some period of time. So I prayed. I said, God, I, have I thought I had a prostate problem because I was going to the bathroom. Here I am, 55 years old, going to the bathroom 10 times a night. I thought I had a prostate cancer or something. You know, doctors sometimes are too proud. So I had to, you know, I finally had to go to the doctor and said, I think I have a, a problem here. And, and the other doctor I said, he says, yeah, that's a problem. You, you know, you're losing weight. You're not sleeping at night. And he said, man, I bet you felt bad. And I felt bad for a while. I was tired, fatigued, wasn't thinking good, thirsty all the time. Tested me. My A1C was 14. I had type 2 diabetes. But luckily for me, I was still making insulin. So I pray, I said, God, why are you doing this to me? You know, I'm trying my best to help you out here, and I'm walking with you every day. Why, why is this happening? I know I'm not a perfect person, but you forgive me every day, and I'm saved by grace, and I don't like this at all. And, he, and, and I didn't understand it, and I said, well, I guess, I guess I'm just going to die early, you know. Everyone in, my, my grandma died when she's 48 from diabetes, and you know, maybe I have some genetic thing that my pancreas is running out of insulin. And God says, no, no. I have some things you need to change. And, and I loved him, so I listened. He says, you know, you need to quit eating processed foods. Oh, I was a chipaholic, I'll admit it. Don't tell anyone outside this room. But I eat chips like crazy. Oh, I want something healthy. I'm going to have some chips. I'm going to have another haystack. I'd go to a restaurant and get a healthy burrito, and the lady would bring me chips, and I'd eat a chip, and she said, you want another chip? Want some more? And I'd put it in that red sauce, and I'd eat it all up, and I wasn't even hungry. I would be in the doctor's lounge and, you know, having a rough day, and, you know, there was a cracker or something, and I'd eat it, and, you know, you know or, or my, anyway, God asked us, based on our relationship, to do different things in life, you know? So he asked me to give up processed foods, so I did. He also asked me to get up early every morning and walk on the treadmill for 30 minutes, and I did. I was always doing it at night, but he asked me to do more, and I did. He asked me to cut back my schedule and take more vacations and rest more, and I did. In three months, I had my A1C down to six, and in four months, I had it down to five. And my addictions went away after about a month because I was seeking pleasure and I was in a, what I call a pleasure trap, just like the animals were. I wanted pleasure to deal with my pains. All of us have pains. 
And the real solution to these pains is coming God. And there's hope not only for today, but as this person had pancreatic cancer, I said, there's hope forever. Stay in this relationship. Worship is a healing relationship forever. Um, as we get back to the Bible, Brian came back a couple months ago, and, and he told me a story. And I said, can I share this? Can I share what happened to you? Because I have lots of these stories going on that I like to share, because I think it makes things more real. And all of us have a story. All of us have a story in life. All of us have stress. All of us have pain. But all of us have the same treatment that we need, right? And we know where to get it. And that is such a joy to know we don't really have to be scared. There's hope for today. There's hope for tomorrow. And God's going to give us the power to make these changes. But he told me a story. Um, and he really, when I first met him, he didn't tell many jokes at all. He was like, an account- is there any accountants here? Engineers? Okay, engineering and accountants are programmed the same way, okay? They want facts. They don't tell many jokes. You know, they want everything in a graph and a form when they come to the office, and that's the way it is. Well, Brian was very much like that, so he surprised me. Usually he comes in with all of his numbers and everything, and this is what I'm doing. He actually, I'm spending 12 minutes of this each day, and I'm doing this each day, and I ask God to do this, and then I do this each day, and I've graphed it out, and I have a trend of my chart, and here's how I've been going, and, and I've actually plugged it in my phone, and I have an app that reminds me at certain times, you know, I'm trying to pray. I read the book of Daniel, how he prayed twice a day, and I'm trying to do that too, and I, this wakes me up. And so he usually went on and on like that, and I was, I was just bracing myself for that. I love the guy, you know, but sometimes he wears you out. You know, you can love people and not agree with them. I've, I've learned that, too. Anyway, he says, Dr. Markham, I want to tell you a joke. I go, a joke? No, he says, not really a joke. And he told me about Peter. And he told me about St. Peter was standing out the gates of heaven. And um, people were, this guy with cancer came up to St. Peter and and he says, you know, I want to go over there and be healed, because I know this is the path to healing. That's where I want to go. And Peter, Peter goes, looks at the guy, says, well, it's going to take 100 points to get there. Well, this guy was an accountant, okay? So he knows points, okay? And he says, okay, this is great. He says, well, you know, even though I have cancer, I went to the doctor and I did everything that the doctor has said. I took the treatments. I did everything my doctor said. Um, you know, and, and Peter goes, man, that is great. I'm so happy for you. That's worth three points. So he writes that down, three points. And he says, wow, I got to get to 100. That was one of my big trump cards there. So he says, oh, he says, eating food. I eat everything perfect. You know, I, I eat a whole food, plant-based diet. I exercise every day. I'm getting enough rest. I, I, I don't put a lot of stimuli in my phone. And Peter goes, man, I'm so proud of you. That is great. That's worth six points. And he goes, 11 points. And he starts thinking. And he says, man, oh, I remember something. He says, oh, my wife. I stayed with my wife. I love her. I take care of my kids. You know, I, I, I pet my dog every day. I, I, I just do all these other things. And he says, man, that is great. That's worth two points. So... He's looking there, and he's saying, man, I've got to get to 100 points. He says, by the grace of God, I'm never going to make it. And Peter goes, you're in. 100 points. <laughs> yeah. 
Brian told me that story. And when I met him, he would have never told me that story. But he, he gets it now. And slow, slowly but surely, his symptoms have gone away. His brain was so stressed with the fear of dying and of his illness, the fear. Remember, God says, I did not create a spirit of fear. Be anxious about nothing in the Philippians. He was so scared, he had this turmoil going on of having disease that he didn't even know about, which all of us had, he didn't know how to handle it. And this was overload for an accountant. And no one could find it. And that bothered him even more. And this stress overload turned on adrenaline and cortisol and the cytokines, and it was making inflammation in his body. And the inflammation was causing his symptoms, the excess epinephrine and norepinephrine and cytokines. And over time, he learned how to turn down the amygdala, which was turning on all this stress chemistry, growing his anterior cingulate cortex and other parts of his brain, and literally turned off those symptoms. So Brian is a believer that worship is a biblical prescription for life. That's the one thing you need to remember today, is worship is a treatment for every health condition you have. And a great text to fall back on is Matthew eleven twenty eight, coming to me. Now, with this, we've seen the importance in the ministry at HeartWise to give people the ability to understand how the physical and spiritual, and we've developed a seven-week Bible study called Biblical Prescriptions for Life um, that people are doing because we need to give people tools, evangelistic tools, that they can help their friends and neighbors, not only with their health, but the way they can see how the spiritual and physical come together in one step at a time. Now, this isn't new material, but it's wrapped differently. It's, it's truth, but I tried to wrap it in love as we wrote, wrote this seven-week Bible study. And it looks very much like Beth Moore, Dave Ramsey Bible study over seven or eight weeks. And people are now doing it from all around the country. They're studying, they're understanding that, you know, what causes disease, we spend a week on that. We spend one whole week on drinking water, because 70, 80% people don't do it, and that's a stressor. Okay, so, but we also talk about water and living water and how the better the brain gets, the better the worship gets. The better the worship gets, the better the body gets. We spend a whole week on movement because we find that 70% of people don't move enough. We sit. We were never designed to sit. Another stressor. We were designed to move, do things. Um, and some people have that stressor and they don't even know it. We spend a whole week talking about nutrition, moving people one step at a time for the right reasons, based on relationships. But then we talk more importantly about the bread of life. We talked about being outside in the light of truth that dispels darkness. We spend a whole week talking about mental health and how God wants to create in us a new mind and ways to deal if your brain is either mentally stressed spiritually stressed or whatever, where the real solutions are. And then lastly, we spend a week in using some of the concepts of worship that we talked about here today. And we're hoping that through going through this study that people will understand the value of worship and they'll grow in it. You can say, hey, listen, you learned all these things, you're feeling better. You want to come and worship with me? And the closer we get to biblical worship, the better our physical life and the better spiritual. And we are called as a people you know, this is part of the three angels' message, the gospel of Christ. We have to present the gospel to people so we can move to the other, the second and the third angels' message. We have to wrap the gospel in something that people want. 
And people like to talk about the health, they like to talk about money, they like to talk about politics. We need to reach people in their needs where they're at. So we don't really have time to answer questions, but, but we're, I'm going to be at booth 612 all day today. We have samples of the biblical prescriptions, if this might be something you're interested in. We have ways you can be involved with HeartWise Ministries. If you're interested in any way of learning more about what we're doing as a ministry, how we're growing, if God's putting you a burden in your heart, we would love to partner with you in any way, shape, or form. Before we leave, I just want to pray over everybody. Just before we go, let's have a word of prayer. Um, so let's bow our heads. Father God, we share this moment in time with each other and with you. Your Holy Spirit is talking to us and we're thankful that we're saved by your grace and we're going to be with you someday soon and we're going to be healed. We've learned some things today, Father, that I want each person to carry with them forever. Help us to love. Help us to follow the way you lead us. And Father, give us peace and help us to accomplish whatever mission you give us in life today. And as we go about today in all of our business, help us to always remember to come to you for our rest and just to trust in you. Thank you for each person here, Father. And there's someone here that needs you especially. We want to pray that you, you come into their heart and bless them in a special way. All of us are hurting in some way, and we all have pains, but we know that the pain won't be forever, and in your presence we're healed, both today and we have something to look for tomorrow, but there's going to be a day where there's no more pain at all. Now go with us this day and bless each family and each person here is my humble prayer. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.